Simply, I felt a little cramped by philosophical mode of discourse and debate. So the language moves force, it moves the thought, it moves the emotion. Hey, what's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we are welcoming back to the show Timothy Levens, who we had on as a bonus guest last year to talk about non-messianic messianicity. I talked about like a non-religious form of messianism and talked about Derrida and Walter Benjamin and Francois Laruelle and other figures. But then at the end, uh, he talked about his concerns or his more recent interests in poetry. And we said, well, we'd have to have him on to talk about poetry. So this week, we're going to talk about that intersection between philosophy and poetry and kind of use the previous discussion about messianicity is opening up into his more recent concerns on poetry it's a great conversation so stick around for that for sure but before we do that we gotta talk a little bit about our sponsor movie right austin that's right this week uh as we do on some of our episodes we are sponsored by the lovely folks over at movie that's m-u-b-i so if you go to movie.com slash owls at dawn they are offering our listeners a free extended trial of 30 days. Mubi is an online streaming service. It uh, has a rotation of films that lasts for 30 days. So each film gets a 30-day rotation, which means that every day a film drops off as a new one is added into the rotation. So it keeps their selection nice and fresh. It's independent films. It's classics of cinema. It's foreign films for all you English speakers. If you're international, then it's just regional films. We still got to figure out how to say that in a way that's actually accurate, right? And that isn't just Eurocentric, but regional films, I guess I'll say. Um, but it's absolutely fantastic. It's uh, my favorite website for streaming uh, online content because um, I'm pretty much guaranteed to find something that is going to tickle my fancy or something that I've wanted to see or something by a director that I have really respected or at least that I've wanted to learn more about. Um, so Troy's going to talk to you about something that is in his regional library because also the libraries do vary depending on where you are in the world. And then I'll briefly mention something that's in my library. So Troy, what's in your library that's got you interested? So in my library in the, uh, I guess, the American region, um, they have the two films on Che by Steven Soderbergh, starring Benicio del Toro as the titular Che. And uh, these came out like 10, 12 years ago. And so it's been a while since I first saw them. But I remember hearing all the stories about how kind of fraught um, the makings of uh, the making of the films were and, you know, the gargantuan scope of them and obviously yeah. the, the intrigue involved with this incredibly controversial and interesting and influential figure. Um, but I remember being kind of struck by them uh, and being very affecting, even though not necessarily like perfect films or, uh, like the greatest um, biopics ever or anything, but uh, very interesting films. And obviously, if Steven Soderbergh does a film, you kind of have to watch it because Absolutely. this is a, a man who has an incredible imagination and is an auteur. So mm. um, absolutely recommend going on movie and watching the Che films by Soderbergh. Yeah, and, and Benicio is fantastic as well. Even oh, yeah. Even in film roles that 
you know, you don't love necessarily the film entirely. He's always, he's always pretty amazing. I remember there was like, I think it was before the film got released, there was a lot of awards buzz around Del Toro and this film. And it didn't really come to much because the film's kind of divided critical opinion. I think the first one got a lot of critical love and the second one less so for, yeah, for whatever yeah. reason. Is that right? From what I remember, yeah. The first one being the Argentine and the second one being Gorilla. Yeah, yeah. And I don't remember exactly why that was, but I don't know. In a, in a weird way, though, my education about who Che was came from this and Motorcycle Diaries from when I, when I was younger, you know? Like, I forgot like, about that, man. I haven't heard that <laughs> Motorcycle Diaries in a decade. I mean, I didn't really know anything about him. So it was these films. So that's cool. Yeah. And then in my library, I'm in Australia. So uh, I don't know if it's the same as the UK or whatever it might be. But uh, but in my library, I've got... So I recently saw a film and in Portuguese, it's called Tropa de Leach, which is Elite Squad. And Elite Squad is an interesting film. It stars... Um, Wagner Mora from Narcos, the guy that plays Pablo Escobar in Narcos. Hmm. Um, he's actually a, a really famous Brazilian actor, which for people who thought that maybe he wasn't of uh, Spanish-speaking origin, he's not. He's Portuguese-speaking origin. But anyway, um, the sequel of Elite Squad is in my movie library. It's Elite Squad, The Enemy Within. And it's very different than the first one. The first one is about... Uh, this group that uh, are called Bope, which are like the Brazilian kind of special forces police. They go into the favelas and they like literally are engaged in pretty militaristic type of endeavors with local drug lords and things like that. Uh, and so the first one kind of sets the landscape for who this elite squad are and uh, some problems that they have and then some tensions from some of the people within and then like new recruits and stuff like that. It's a really interesting film. Um, if It's not a perfect film. But then the sequel kind of expands on that and goes much more into government corruption. And so it broadens the scope a little bit. And it's actually a much better film in terms of it's a tighter film. It's better shot. The storyline is a little bit more, uh, I think, consistent. There's some there's some holes in the first one that kind of make you go, you know, it, that, that kind of uh, disrupt your suspension of disbelief a little bit. Whereas the second one is much more, I think, of a complete uh, film. So anyway, that's that's on mine. Both of them I would recommend. I think they're both really interesting films. And the first one, Elite Squad, uh, is I think like the highest grossing film in box office history in Brazil. So oh really. I, it, it's it's like that, and then um, what is it? City of God is that what it's called? Yeah, that's a great film. Oh my God. Yeah, those are like those are like the two most popular of recent Brazilian cinematic history, and and I think that Elite Squad is the the number one box office. Um, it definitely was the year that it was released. I don't know if it is uh, like ever, but definitely the year it was released was. But anyway, um, like I said, sequels in, in my movie, so check that out. So go to movie.com slash owls at dawn, and you can get your free extended 30-day trial. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash owls at dawn. And we also want to add that if you value what we're doing here at owls at dawn, you can support us at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There you can get access to many of the patron-only materials that we produce, such as bonus episodes, um, of which one will be released uh, pretty much at the same time as this episode. Uh, no, it should and, be. It'll it'll be released before this episode. It'll it'll already be out. Okay, then you heard it here first. 
And then also the monthly newsletter, um, which will be coming out soon for June. Um, and the ability to recommend future Patreon-sponsored episodes, like we did recently with the Zizek and Peterson debate. So go to patreon.com slash dawn to support us in those ways and get access to those materials. Yeah, and just to pique your interest, the bonus episode is going to be talking about the most recent Black Mirror season, episode one, Striking Vipers, otherwise known as, are video games gay? Um. That's the op. What's that? That internet law about the answer to every headline is no. <laughs> this is yeah, the opposite. This is the yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Video, all video games are gay. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So look out for that. But of course, before we do anything else, we got to prime the pumps. We got to flush the system. We got to drink our celery juice. It's the shitty minute. It's where one of us gets to rant and rave about whatever it is that's pissing us off for the week. When we were preparing this episode, I thought it was my term, so I had a shitty minute prepared, but I'm just going to defer it to the next episode, because it's, it's Troy's deferring turn. deferring when I have the right, dude. Come on. Okay. In, you're right. It is um, admitting my mistakes and stepping <laughs> back into my place. It's being put in my place. So, Troy, what's up, man? It's actually kind of funny that you phrase it, put it in your place, because my shitty minute is actually a tweet that you uh, made. Oh, shit. Oh no! I'm so sorry to do this, Austin, but it was too, it was too easy, and I kind of had to have you explain yourself. Um, Oh God! You would think that I would have you explain yourself because I'd want you to be able to have the chance to justify your opinion. But since I know it's unjustifiable, I'm actually just going to make things worse for you. I think. (laughs) Um, But Austin Hayden uh, recently tweeted this: If you leave your tea bag in for more than 30 seconds and a couple (laughs) or three dunks. You're a monster. <laughs> so I'm going to let that steep for a second. Oh, uh, good metaphor. <laughs> but uh, I need you to explain yourself so I can then roast you. So here's what's so funny. So I got a lot of people that were like, some really funny responses. Uh, I, <laughs> one girl was like, oh, is this why they kicked you out of the UK? <laughs> <laughs> And justifiably so. Which was great. And then I had somebody quote tweet me. That That's said, basically flag burning in the UK, right? Well, so and then I had someone quote tweet me and say something about, you know, Yanks and stuff like that. And it was great. Um, so so here's the thing. Obviously, it was a little bit tongue in cheek. And I knew that it was going to <laughs> to be an annoyance. But uh, I, I tweeted it because it was literally, I don't often do stream of consciousness tweets. But in this time, I did. And it was making, I was making a cup of tea. And I realized that I make tea in the way that I was kind of trained by an ex-girlfriend who was Irish, motherfuckers, so get off my goddamn back. Um, We're not playing identity politics here with the (laughs) tea, dude. There's a right way and a wrong way, but continue. Well, so here's the thing. So when I was in the UK, it was so interesting that people, a lot, most people have like the way that they make their tea, right? And it's like they know that if it's not made that way that you've fucked it up right so it's it's like they can tell if you've left the tea bag in too long if you've added too much milk too much sugar not enough sugar whatever they know because they have their way of making their tea i have never been that way like i i just like to be honest if my tea were was were steeping for 4 minutes or something like that that wouldn't destroy it for me you know like is that my favorite way no i probably i i like it less than that i like it under a minute right but i did notice that when i was making this cup of tea that i I had it in for probably, God, like 20 seconds, if that. And then and then when I take it out, uh, I kind of like dip it 
a couple of times just to make the color even, and then I tossed the tea bag away. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, that's it. But yeah, man, it's, it's just like a habit thing. And I realized that part of the reason that I do that is because um, uh, a girl that I dated that first turned me into a tea drinker, and her family used to make fun of her for it, is that, <laughs> that they would always joke around <laughs> that like they don't like that she barely lets the tea bag touch the water before she pulls it out. <laughs> it's like like she would have her tea bag in for ten seconds. And then it would come out. It's just water then. <laughs> okay, there's so many things I need to say here, but just to clarify, we're talking about what, like black tea here? Yeah, 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 breakfast tea. Okay, because that needs to be steeped even longer than other kinds of tea, like green tea. Because um, you you made some comment to, uh, when I responded and uh, said something about herbal teas, or you were saying it's not about herbal teas. Yeah, because I think for, for me, green tea, I let them steep longer. Like, And I drink a lot of green tea. Okay, but black tea is supposed to steep for even longer than green tea. Supposed to. Where are these rules, okay. Troy? Okay, this does this doesn't matter. You, you're just you need to be told that you're wrong for these following reasons. <laughs> um, there there are two wrong ways that you can brew tea um, that are kind of popular. One is leaving the tea bag in until you finish drinking it, which is completely hey. insane. And Brett from Rev Left Radio commented, and he actually said that that's what he does. And so I just want to say, Brett, you're a monster. Yeah, I'm going to actually agree with that. But then you can, I don't think you can say that because what you do is also uh, similarly monstrous, just in a different way. Um, here's what I don't get. With black tea, you have the maximum caffeine content, like 30 milligrams or whatever in, in uh, most black teas, right? If you steep it for 30 seconds or less, you're not getting any of the caffeine. So it's not even really tea at that point. It hasn't like ontologically become tea. Because the caffeine content is not going to be there. Like, what are you getting out of it other than just Can I respond point slightly by point? flavored water? So that's okay. Sometimes I just want something warm to drink because I don't want the caffeine content. Like my coffee in the morning is my caffeine. And I usually only do two cups of coffee max a day. Um, so for me, but I drink a lot of tea throughout the day. And so for me, it's just I like something warm when I'm in my office or when I'm at a cafe and I'm doing work. It could be fucking lemon and ginger squeezed into a cup of water i just need something warm a lot of times then just drink some hot cocoa motherfucker like no i don't want the don't sugar be bastardizing tea i don't want the sugar <laughs> the tea's good okay then I chamomile do some herbal bullshit yeah that'll point. make me all sleepy and shit chamomile doesn't make you sleepy what are you talking yeah, it's about relaxing it's, no no well, it's relaxing yeah but it can also sharpen you okay this is beside the point also herbal i feel, teas I feel are very teas. attacked by the way this is not yeah, how I like and justifiably stuff. so. So so did Hitler, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, I just I don't want to be one of these like tea fascists who's like you have to brew the tea in the exact but, way that the manufacturer but. recommends. Um, you can brew tea in the way that you like. That's fine. Uh, it was more the idea that like brewing tea in such a way that you get the caffeine and the taste content out of it that it was produced to make that that's monstrous was just that set off uh, every single like alarm bell in my mind. Um, <laughs> so you needed to be told in public that you're wrong. You need to be castigated, tarred and feathered, and you have been. Yeah. So um, I'm fine now. Uh, I've gotten my like Nietzschean uh, pleasure and catharsis out of your public torture and punishment. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I do want to point out that there's, there's two ra- wrong ways to, to brew tea are wrong and still be able to uphold the sort of tea pluralism that there are many right ways to do tea. And at least 
I think mostly just two wrong ways. And one of those is, is your preferred method. You know what it is? You're just basically like a street preacher that's like, hey, man, go your own way. But do you know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven tonight? That's what you're basically <laughs> That's basically what you're asking me. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're, you know, they're not always wrong. They're made <laughs> not wrong in content, always. but not in form. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I have been properly ratioed uh, in podcast life. <laughs> All right, sweet. So now we're going to jump into our main segment, and we have a returning guest on. It is Tim Levins, who came on, God, it was quite a few months back now to talk about messianism or non-messianic messianicity, however right. it was that we framed yeah. it. And tried then to at frame the, it. Yeah, tried <laughs> to frame it. And then at the end of the episode, we kind of started discussing how his philosophical interests had led him to poetry and so we kind of promised that we would have him back on to talk about his interests so this is that uh fulfillment of that expectation so tim welcome to the show thank you I'm lucky, lucky to be back happy to be back cool man so last time you were here we can you just give like a two minute like elevator pitch of your <laughs> research into messianicity well, messianicity, um, it actually uh, shares a bit of territory with, with poetry also, in my view, but um, messianicity is, is sort of a, a way to think about religious ideas and religious experience sort of beyond the boundaries of religion, I guess, simplest way to put it. Um, it's, not, it's not really fresh on my mind right now, but uh, yeah. the, main idea, the main idea is to find... Uh, new ways to express uh, traditional ideas so that they reach a more universal audience, so that they're more flexible, free-flowing, um, basically a sort of pragmatism of religious knowledge, you could say. Mm. Um, did, have you read Hagland, Martin Hagland? Uh, yeah, the, uh, his book, This Life, just came out a bit ago. Yeah, yeah. did you... Have you gone through that yet? Because Troy and I, we we tackled an article that he wrote in, was it the New York Times, Troy? Um, I'm not sure what the source was. I don't remember. But yeah, it was just a brief little uh, synopsis of his argument in this life. All right. Yeah. Have you been able to, to flip through those pages yet? Um, I, I looked a bit at the argument, yeah. And what, what, what do you think? Because is he trying to do something similar? Because he's a Der Derrida scholar. Yeah, so. yeah that's right. Um, I, I see it totally with totally in a line of of, of such developments of okay. Um, um, I mean, in a way, it comes down to what sort of language are we going to accept to talk about these things, and how does that language shape the way we think and put these things into practice? And so, um, he's right to sort of call out the ideologies which emphasize only an afterlife or only some eternal or some escape from the world. And so, yes, uh, messianicity is is about bringing these ideas so that they come to bear upon the transformation of the world. Sure, yeah, and it's it's about this 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 life, you know, and this life for others. So hmm. That's that's the Derridian line of it, and and yeah, so absolutely, I, I do see it in a, in a continuous development from that. Okay, so take us through your journey, man. What led you oh. from doing? intense philosophical research to now spending the last couple of years reading, writing, thinking yeah. about poetry and whatnot. Yeah, it, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, 
have to back up a little bit because um, I, I started writing and reading poetry when I was 16. Uh, actually had an, an illness at the time and I was I had a flu which gave me a, a temperature of over 101 which meant I had to go to the hospital for three days um, hmm. sort of automatically. They gave me a laptop and I found a website with a rap website and that was actually how I first sort of got into poetry was through rap music and rap forum online, you know, trading verses and, uh, hmm. and that sort of thing. And Do you remember who, who it was that were the artists that you were encountering? Oh, all sorts. Like uh, uh, Sage Francis was a big one at the time. Um, oh, all of them, you know, Tupac, uh, Eminem, you know, I was 16. I don't, I don't know. Um, Sage Francis. I don't even know Sage Francis. Yeah, Sage wow. Francis. Um, I'm not a hip hop fan. Zion so. I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's me digging <laughs> in my memory banks. <laughs> Troy, do you? Because you're much more into the the music world than I am. You know, Sage. No, I don't even know who that is. Sage Francis, yeah. Atmosphere. You know, Atmosphere, Slug. Yeah. Um, I know Atmosphere. Gosh, Elronius. Um, Elronius was big. He's got an album called Imaginarium. He's very good. Okay. And, I, and, and I, I keep that interest. I really love Denzel Curry. He's, his albums are Oh, yeah. But so, yeah, and so then I started, I, I got sort of intoxicated and fascinated mm -hmm. by their usage of wordplay and rhyme and metaphor. And so I started incorporating that into my own way to deal with what was going on in my life at that time with the illness. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, fast forward in a bit, I was in college and was doing jazz piano but all set to do a year of jazz piano and then took a class on modern creative poetry and read um someone like john ashbury for the first time uh, paul salon jack spicer people who sort of remain important and i that was at that time that i decided to really start trying to write poetry um the sort of transition that austin you were referring to is a bit more recent because I did a master's and I did all this work mm -hmm. on messianity and philosophy. And I guess, I guess to that point, I, I got a little, um, I, I put simply, I felt a little cramped by the philosophical mode of discourse and debate. Mm. And I, I had never really left poetry, but I just started opening the door more and more to uh, kind of going back to that territory and, um, so for me, uh, the main question is poetry as a form of thought, and how does philosophy understand that remains a very interesting question to me. This is really interesting, this, this feeling cramped by philosophical discourse. I think this is something that Troy and I speak to quite a bit. I just finished going through Deleuze's Difference in Repetition again, mm -hmm. and I think one way that we could say that he is developing his argument in that text is precisely against what he would call a cramping of philosophical discourse, a foreclosure of being able to think difference because it's always subsumed under identity. And people view him as like an anti-Platonist, but actually I think it's it's Aristotle that is the big bad guy for Deleuze in that okay, text. Yeah. Uh, it's Aristotle who is the first person to subsume diversity, the diversity of properties under the concept of identity, right? Predication right. is always derived from or subsidiary to 
that which is individuated first. And so this idea that philosophical discourse is cramped is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, is that maybe something that has why you got interested in this enigmatic figure, Laruel? Because <laughs> he kind of wants to circumvent philosophical discourse by thinking the real. And so he, again, is similar to Deleuze, but in a different way. He's trying to get outside of that that cramping, as you say. And also, really quick, before you answer that, Tim, um, I was just wondering, to clarify, if the cramping you felt was more about the sort of theoretical content that Austin's talking about, or if it was more about sort of the norms of argument and discussion um, that are more Um. uh, formal. Well, yeah, okay, so definitely the sort of norms and argument and debate. I, that, I will fully confess to a kind of exhaustion with the <laughs> spinning of the wheels and kind of getting nowhere and, and, and feeling at the end that you're almost just playing a kind of language game and coming down to semantics and so on. On the level of theory, I, I, I have a lot of respect for theory. Um, I think really as, as, as a writer myself, I've done a lot of, uh, philosophical type writing as well as poetry um, and so I, st- I, st- I still will always do both but um, yeah I suppose after the experience of writing in a highly philosophical way for a long time I needed a, a breath of fresh air. Um, La Laurel was a part of getting there I would say um, but no more so than someone like Derrida who's also important to me in that type of study. Um, but more directly to Laurel, you could you could just say you know he's trying he was trying to find once again a language um, you could put it as a, as a participatory language. Um, he speaks of you know waves and or axioms as um, a kind of never using concepts in a way that they rest in in, in their identity, um, but are constantly colliding into one another and. Know, uses the model, model of the particle collider where you, you slam to you slam uh, Levinas's transcendence with Michel Henry's radical imminence and and see what happens you know? and, that, <laughs> and, that, and that's what he, and that's what he did and then he decides to you know slam Meister Eckhart with Einstein and the Copenhagen interpretation you know so he's just very creative and uh, he, he sort of rides the wave and and, and lives in that dream. Hmm. Troy, do, do you feel that cramping sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, I was interested in thinking about that dichotomy between um, the more formal cramping that I was ref- uh, referring to and the stuff that you were talking about, Austin, and how I think anyone who deals with academic philosophy for a while is going to feel both of those, um, hmm. but to different degrees. And your general philosophical temperament seems to kind of dictate which one of those you respond to negatively the most and then that kind of colors what you tend to do we've talked about that right. previously in the podcast the the general philosophical temperament that a person has and how that leads them towards sort of disparaging certain schools and families in philosophy and um kind of celebrating or adhering to others and that that i think is um very interesting if you know ultimately it's purely a genealogical critique and not necessarily like the you know catch-all um, critique of philosophy, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about and talk about with respect to. So, one's own so work. you mean that the that the disposition of the thinker kind of uh, guides where someone lands in their annoyances? 
Yeah, and I don't mean that as a purely like deterministic critique because your temperaments yeah. can change depending upon things it's that highly personal. Yeah, but just it's just interesting to think about, and I think important for an individual to sort of be circumspect about their own temperament and how that affects what they like and don't like in the academic world. Do you, Troy, tend to get more? Does the uh, does the formal and normative uh, affect you? Does it tend to affect you more than the theoretical cramping? Yeah, I think that you know the the theoretical cramping. I, I tend to get a little bit more upset with, um, just because it usually involves predispositions and presuppositions that are not admitted to or are not mm. um, sort of transparent to the thinker, and that's what mm. kind of gets me mad. I, being a little bit more OCD, uh, like the kind of um, the norms that are strict, and though th- I think that means you can also break them, but then you can break them in ways that are strategic. Right, it's sort of like um, like songwriters would often talk about, you know, understanding the rules of songwriting, like pop songwriting, so that you can then break them strategically and creatively, um, rather than just you know being like haphazard and making noise. And so I've always kind of thought about the norms of philosophical writing as being kind of similar to that. Uh, but I can absolutely understand why someone who is much more creatively minded than I am would find those those constraints to be utterly. Um, sort of just stifling to any sort of creative mm. potential. Mm. It's interesting. I think if you spend any time on philosophy Twitter, which is a thing, people, for, you know, just like NBA Twitter is a thing, and there are all these little spaces carved weird out Twitter. in that. Weird Twitter? Yeah, weird Twitter is the best, dude. Is it? See, look at that. I just found a new world to <laughs> enter into. But I, I feel like philosophy Twitter from... Like in the, it seems to be mostly analytic based and most people, I'm not that there aren't people who are doing work on like post-Kantian continental stuff, but most of it tends to be uh, analytic philosophers that have the biggest prominence and stuff like that in philosophy Twitter, at least from what I have noticed. But they seem to be very frustrated by the norms that you're talking about, Troy, quite a bit. Like that seems to be a very constant gripe. And I wonder if it's like like a disciplinary, like Anglo-American philosophy tends to breed dissatisfaction in that direction, whereas uh, the quote-unquote continental school tends to breed a dissatisfaction in the other direction towards the more theoretical. I mean, I, of course, that's a radical overgeneralization, probably easy compartmentalization, but I wonder if there's something about those discourses that are inherently limited to the point that when you're in them and you're immersed in them and you're trying to kind of break free from them, that that's, that's the target that you will immediately aim your vitriol towards. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, mostly because maybe this is too simple of a, um, of a critique, but you know, in continental philosophy, there aren't really strict norms regarding argument and discussion. At least they're, they're very flexible norms, um, and it's, people welcome those norms to be challenged. Whereas in analytic philosophy, it seems like those those kind of formal norms are actually um, sort of ideologically based, right? The idea of clarity as being like the ultimate virtue in philosophy um, means that it's a it's a normative concept. It's not just a a purely formal uh, norm. It's not like um, you know putting your uh, the proper knife in the proper place at the dinner table. You know, totally right. unargued for etiquette kind of norm. No, this is like a, right. a principled. We do this because it's the right way to do things. 
kind of a norm. <laughs> and that's going to piss people off when they want to challenge it and aren't really allowed to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we don't need to talk about it too much, but that's exactly what one of the things. So Deleuze's argument is actually that they kind of relate to one another, that the theolog- that the, the theoretical cramping um, helps us understand the formal cramping. It's what he calls the dogmatic image of thought. And one of the postulates that he attacks that is in the dogmatic image of thought is the sort of Cartesian idea that uh, the sort of universality of good sense and common sense. And then what that leads to is a form of uh, recognition as thinking. But this idea that sense is actually good, that it's a faculty that will uh, adequate truth so long as they're not some sort of external factor that's clouding it or confusing it, but that reason and rationality has a sort of good, harmonious function in itself. Uh, and then not only that, but that it is a moral good, that it is a, it is a good thing in, as a value in, in the value sense. And he says that that's part of what he calls the dogmatic or the moral image of thought. And so he kind of is trying to drop a grenade into both of those. And I find that interesting because what that does then is that does open you up to what I think is a very poetic journey. And, you know, he he says something, and then this will kind of get us back on track for Tim's journey here, I think. But he says something at one point that regarding love, that love is confronting possible worlds in the other or that are enveloped in the other. And so to love someone or to love something is to basically be confronted by this excess, this thing that is out with of your world and that you don't quite have access to from your phenomenological uh, point of view. But when you love something, it is that excess, that thing, kind of think in psychoanalytic terms, it is that excessive beyond that is causing your desire, the objipatia, right? And that it is it is different from everything else and it is seducing you and it's got attractive quality to it and it's pulling you towards it. And I think there's something that when you start thinking from that perspective that just automatically has has really drawn me to poetry lately as well because it basically opens up this beyond that is outside of discursive traditions and language traditions and um, types of theoretical frames of thinking and I don't know. So that's it's it's funny that I have found an interest in poetry sort of more recently because of my interests in continental philosophers. So I don't know. Tim, take it away. <laughs> yeah, well, um excess is a good good place to start. I mean I I imagine that some of these norms of discourse and of whether formal or theoretical in the the work or in the exchange, these are all the issue is what are we comfortable with understanding? What are we not comfortable with understanding? And how willing are we to feel pushed beyond what the, the, the comforts of understanding in which we habitually dwell? And it would seem to me that um, um, poetry is, is certainly one way. And it should be said right away that, that poetry is not just, uh, you know, words written on a page. Absolutely, poetry is, you know, the adjective poetic can be applied to just about anything and uh, anything, but you know what I mean? Um, philosophy, uh, a movie, or a piece of music. Um, Jean-Luc Nancy speaks about this and um, draws out uh, this idea of the poetic is what is sort of elevated, what kind of this excess over what is, in some sense, elevated. and, mm. and 
which both has kind of lightness to it and also a heaviness to it. Um, elevation and touching. He's, he's a big philosopher of touching. So, so and, and just being touched by a phrase, being touched by a poem, being touched by a philosophical passage, what does it mean to be touched by something? And does that touch make us uncomfortable or uncomfortable? And, and, and poetry can certainly make us uncomfortable because it uses words in strange ways. It, it uses grammar in strange ways. Uh, kind of this idea of defamiliarization, right? Mm. Um, poetry is in a way a quest to see how far that can go and what happens when we go that far. Yeah, I mean... You, I don't, know have, that, I don't know if that makes if that makes no, any sense. Totally. Well, I think totally. Troy retweeted a tweet. I sent you a phrase. I've talked about this with Darius quite a bit, but it's the word thergy. And Troy, do you remember the tweet that you retweeted? I think it was like thergical, but not religious. Oh yeah, <laughs> I thought that was great. I want a T-shirt that says that. Right, and and I kind of said something to Tim the other day in a text message where I said, you know, that there's a thergical element to poetry and. Darius, who was a guest that we had on our podcast a couple of months or maybe a month back, talking about uh, like this uh, uh, this essay by uh, China Mieville on apophatic Marxism. But Darius is also a, a big lover, reader, writer of poetry, thinker about poetry. But it seems that there's something thergical that this that that it has this ascendant quality to it. To maybe use a spatial metaphor, I don't know if I like that spatial metaphor, but. But it definitely yeah. is a, attesting to the excess, right? And um, I wonder if that's because there's something inherently paradoxical about a poetic pursuit. And and for me, the way that I can best that I can best grasp that because I'm new to written poetry. I think. I mean, I studied it in school. I've got a fucking half sleeve tattoo of John Milton poem on my arm. So. Um, so I'm familiar in as a dilettante, I guess we could say, but like really dedicating myself to reading poetry is something that I've undertaken in the last you know year, I guess ish. And but film is something that is a language that can have a poetic resonance to it. And I recently saw Wings of Desire by Vim Vendors, and the only way I can describe that film is as poetic because mm. it doesn't simply tell you everything. It doesn't simply explain everything. It doesn't describe everything. Even when it's describing, it's sort of kind of, it's it's taking you to a cliff and then kind of like giving you a parachute and then you jump at the limit of what they've said, um, like where it stops and it like leaves you there, but it doesn't build a bridge across the problem. You know, it's kind of, like it, it, it presents a problem or it presents some sort of quandary, some sort of confusion, but it doesn't have to answer it or resolve it necessarily. And I feel like that there's something about poetry in its various different guises that that does that, that that um, that, that kind of stops, that is teetering at the edge of the beyond, the nothing, the excess, or whatever it is. I don't really know how to describe it, but thergy is the way that I have kind of been thinking about it. Yeah, um, it's. I would just note that in order for you to uh, 
explain your feeling there about it, you had you had to use a type of metaphor, right? You said it <laughs> takes a, takes you to a cliff, <laughs> yeah, and it gives you a parachute, and it but it doesn't give you a bridge, so yeah. it doesn't tell you it doesn't tell you in a way how to get to its side. It just takes you to the height at which it is, and and asks you to sort of jump into its air and, and hope hope you breathe on your way down, right? <laughs> mm. um, and and poet the the sort of way poetry works right is exactly like that you know you're trying to describe something and and you find yourself in the midst of a metaphor um, and for those this relates to our previous discussion you know a great debate was had between Derrida and Paul Ricoeur about about metaphor um, and there's there's no necessity to go into that but. Um, Derrida, of course, was arguing that you know all philosophy draws draws from metaphor, and that you know you can't even get a really solid concept of metaphor from out, out of philosophy um, because it because it pervades the whole thing. For example, the metaphor of light, the light of truth, clarity. What is clarity? Hmm. Metaphor, it's a metaphor involving light. Hans Blumenberg has, has also really good good work on this. Uh, calls it metaphorology, and he just goes through all the different metaphors that were used for truth. Extremely ironic that clarity is a metaphor that is not very clear. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> when did you ever see anything that was clear that didn't have a bit of a shadow? Or I mean, you know, of course, in theology, God is pure light. Um, hmm. There's reason, reasons for all this. It's because even philosophical thought has... Has, has this element of metaphor and you know Derrida especially he went looking for these right and he found his pyramids and Hegel and, and all this type of thing. You know, we're talking here I think and kind of expounding on this defamiliarization concept and I was thinking you know there seems to be kind of two poles in between which poetry seems to to function and that's the the pole of pure noise which doesn't even give you the parachute at the cliff, right? It just kind of like pushes mm -hmm. you off the cliff. So you, you don't have a way of responding other than to fall, right? And then the other one is just pure sugar, right? Just to sort of like force feed you mm. something that will give you pain or pleasure or whatever it is, right? But not allow you to respond really. You're just kind of a prisoner. And poetry seems to shock you to thought and to action in between those, right? It gives you the parachute and says, you have to choose what to do now um, or what to think now. And that that concept to me seems directly parallel to kind of the foundation of philosophical thinking. You know, Socrates very much was about shocking individuals to thought out of their complacency, right? He called himself a gadfly to the state mm. in the sense that the gadfly would, you know, shock the horse and make the horse act in some way. And he's being a little sarcastic, right? Because he's talking about himself as being annoying. But that's more mm. about how people just don't like the fact that they're burdened with the anxiety of, having to act, um, which the philosopher sort of puts on them, right? And that's going to be annoying. But poetry does basically the same kind of thing, right? It gives you these tools, but then you have to choose how to interpret and respond and act. And that can be a burden, but then it's also, um, you know, the means through which you can actually achieve, you know, something proper to thought that's not just regurgitating what you've been told. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. Um, I would just add to that um, this question of the relation between poetry and action is is, is very diff very difficult. Uh, Auden I have this quote here where he says, "Poetry makes nothing happen." 
Yeah, I saw that. Interesting. <laughs> and, this, and this was quoted by by the by the great science fiction writer Samuel Delaney, and he he was talking about how well poetry does modify our everyday discourse and, and changes what we think is possible. You know, even in terms of social change and, and race relations and, and all of this, poetry participates in. And yet, why 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 then do we say that poetry makes nothing happen? So I think you're right on to say that it. It has this defamiliarizing thing, and and that's why it can be uncomfortable, right? Because it can feel like it's leaving you into an in, in, a, in an abyss, and you are shocked, and your your previous definitions of of how the world works, and how language works, and what being even is, and how to understand the meaning of being is all is all thrown open, right? Um, but that's both risk and possibility. I wondered when it said when he said poetry makes nothing happen. Is it poetry makes nothing? As in, like, das nicht, it makes nothing happen, yeah. or it doesn't make anything happen. Oh, I, I don't like, think Otto like was a Heideggerian. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he wasn't a Heideggerian, but we're, we're fine to read him. as. Because if we think about it as making nothing happen, then it has a sort of rupturing effect. And it's sort of that poetry has that eventual tear that that is what happens that poetry unseats and it disrupts precisely because it's introducing uh or maybe it's creating maybe inducing a tear in the the habit of a social formation or a linguistic system or a psychic life or something yeah troy you mentioned um Hear noise, um, and I, I. One of the, if not the biggest influence on me is Paul Salon, poetically. Um, and I've done a few articles on him, and one of and one of them was about this question of silence, and how poem reconstructs silence in language, in, in a way you could say combating this noise. He even puts it that. Uh, the human as silence is the only way to combat combat the human as information. So, so you can even look at it as a war of, of the pure noise of constant information, where, like you said, there's there's no parachute. You're just overwhelmed. That that ear poetry is maybe not even a shock. It's more of a settling down or a calming of the noise by introducing silence. And that Austin, you were talking about the meditative aspect. So it does both of these things, right? Mm. Yeah, I like yeah, that I was because especially, yeah, yeah, especially in kind of a, a 20th century and 21st century person, um, the lack of solitude that individuals have, poetry has this new kind of resonance as mm. taking you out of the world and life in which you are just a cog in a machine and just being moved around by external authorities and um and whatever and instead making you sit down and kind of become internal right and to actually think rather than just react and so right. that might not have been the case for most of human history where silence kind of abounds and solitude abounds but mm, today true, true. yeah it ha- have this new sort of effect i've been thinking about that a lot with regards to online language and not just like I think there's something interesting to to speak about the form of online language in terms of the digital format and how that might have some sort of stylistic um, 
like value laden orientation to how how and in what ways we can even say things anyway but also just more generally particularly twitter i spend a bit of time on twitter not as much on facebook i'm not as much on instagram i just look at like cabins and diy <laughs> stuff on instagram so that's that it's got a poetic uh, element to it i guess cuz it just makes me want to do my walden and escape to the wilderness but but twitter is a site where it's just words and it's yeah i mean pictures and video every now and then but it's mostly words and it's very rare that you find accounts that aren't extremely descriptive it's mostly just propositional descriptive or exclamatory right or people try to use irony and satire but it's it's all very um it's very heavy-handed still and i feel like in a sense there's a real lack of poetry just in the habitual form of Twitter. And I think maybe one of the reasons that I find a reprieve in actually reading poetry proper in a book, as weird as it might sound, is that it is a reprieve from maybe idle chatter or from cliche or uh, some type of serial linguistic form of discourse. And poetry, at least from what I've been able to gather, and as I've been trying to intuit poetic images on screen in films anyway, the films that I've been drawn to recently, are those films that have that meditative aspect, that that slow down my rhythm, um, that, that don't seem to impose the demands that uh, of what Darius called a couple of episodes back, you know, the perpetual motion machine or the embarrassment into velocity, which those two mm -hmm. phrases have been bouncing around my mind nonstop, and I think there's something so interesting about them. I feel caught up in this perpetual motion machine, and I do feel embarrassed into velocity, and poetry seems to rebut both of those tendencies. You know, one one thing that I, way that I really like to describe poetry is that with most uses of language, and Twitter probably especially, and all this description, is that language disappears in the, in, in the, the act, right? You don't pay attention that it's language when you're scrolling through Twitter because it's it's exclamatory, it's opinionated, it's it's vitriolic. It, it's all it's all um, leading attention away from the language itself, and so the language disappears. Um, mm. The the medium that we are always in and understanding with. Uh, vanishes for the sake of a message, for the sake of a, a bit of information. And that makes us anxious because we're propelled along in this uh, high-speed way, embarrassed, like you embarrassed into velocity. And, and it's like we don't know why, because always the, the thing that's propelling us there, we're not paying attention to, <laughs> uh, which is the language, the medium itself. And so poetry can really... It's, it's really good to understand it in this way that the attention is in the language itself. The, the language moves force. It moves the thought. Um, it moves the emotion. Um, and, and that's why it's tenuous and shaky and sometimes uncomfortable and shocking because it doesn't know what it's saying because in order to say what it means to say, it has to 
always draw its attention back into how it is saying it, the words it's saying it. And not even just the words, but the, the rhythm, the enjambment, the rhyme, etc. So, so this makes me think then, because so much of Twitter is concerned with social, political, environmental, cultural issues. Yes. Is poetry then necessarily at odds with the supposed uh, imminent immediacy of the needs that these Twitter concerns speak of? Like, what is the relationship between poetry and politics? Is it always something that is, you know, because I can imagine, and after our conversation, Troy, I didn't, I don't think I've told you this, but after our chat with Darius, he and I kind of chatted about it, but I was thinking about it a lot too. I could imagine someone listening saying, yeah, this is all well and good, apophatic Marxism. It, you know, can cause us to stop and to think about these uh, sort of more maybe transcendent concerns, but we have shit to do now. There are people dying now. You know, the earth is on fire now. And I have to tweet about it now. Yeah, and I have to tweet about it now. So how how do we, like in my heart and in my soul, I can say that I have a longing for this slowdown, for this patience, for silence. But how does that, or is it is it like necessarily kind of at odds with political concerns that don't tend to allow for, and they breed a discourse and a form of subjectivity that can't tarry with that patience. Well, that's, that's a huge topic, and poets to varying degrees take up political concerns according to where they're coming from and what matters to them. Like I said before when we were discussing this, um, the poet comes to poetry with concerns that are also outside of poetry, whether or not poetry as, you know, as a writing activity and sharing of poems, whether that can, yeah, it's what we were discussing earlier with Auden and Delaney, that, you know, poetry makes nothing happen. It alters the discourse of, possible, of the possible, but it doesn't, it doesn't directly give us answers to the pressing issues of the day. Luckily, we we can do other things than just read poetry and write poetry, and it's possible to kind of, in one life, operate on different levels. And I don't have great answers about this. I do think that my approach to poetry is a bit more philosophical and abstract and, and so on. Other people would really be pressing on poetry's role in social change and Changing the minds of others. Um, mm. I don't think there's one. I don't think there's one answer there. But it's a tough. It's a tough question. Yeah, I think that developing a, a positive account of the relationship between politics and poetry is pretty tough, and probably there's you know a variegated number of things that could be said, all of which are true. But from the kind of negative side, I think there tends to be this fetishization of this notion that if I just do this one thing or the series of singular things, then I'm going to have the effect on the world I need to have to be satisfied yeah. politically. And mm. if I just send out this fire ass tweet, then, you know, hmm. 30 people are going to see it and they're going to affect 30 more people. And all of a sudden everybody has the same policy goals that I have and that will change the world. Then we're all going to be safe from climate change. And that just isn't the way the, that people or the world work. Um, and it's a kind of pathology that I think, 
individuals mm. have when sort of seeing themselves as more influential and powerful than they actually are rather than you know the sort of uh outflow of a series of random forces of which we know but you know but very little and it's never really served us well in the past to think of historical change happening that way we only really ever see which events were important after the fact and usually the events that we think are going to be important don't end up being as important um Mm. so i think it it absolutely behooves us to kind of take this slow down seek solitude at times intermittently and you know kind of work on ourselves so that we're better prepared to you know serve in the world politically and socially and otherwise in ways that are most beneficial and not in this sort of pathological vein um, yeah, i agree i agree with you totally there's a, a fetishization of the now um for for a good reason for very good reason but it can lead to um actions like you know twitter or something that are at the end of the day just reactions, and, you know, coming from anxiety and fear of not knowing what else to do. Well, and it seems too that when we are concerned preeminently with the now, that it forecloses an actual opening for the novel, um, because the now just gets reproduced. We are responding laterally, which means we're borrowing other people's words. We're engaging in cliche. It's a reproduction rather than a production. And that's not to say that in reproduction, novelty can't emerge. I would say that novelty is kind of always emerging, but it's being papered over and covered over precisely by the inherited, let's say, lateral serial discourse that is reproduced. And so it forecloses potential or capacity or possibility or whatever. And I don't know, I guess I maybe this is maybe an overly optimistic way of thinking about the relationship of poetry and politics. And I don't really have any truly formulated thoughts on this, so it's just kind of bullshitting here. But I wonder if there's a sense in precisely, I think one of you two said it a minute ago, that that it changes people's minds or it can change people's minds, that there's um, that there's a sense in which that that poetry, poetic thinking, you can see it in politics, right? There are poetic moments in politics. I mean, I don't know if I'm... Uh, I'm I'm overselling, you know, this candidate, but I think that Bernie Sanders has had some poetic moments precisely because he's standing in that that space that is a juxtaposition. And when he comes up with this economic bill of rights and he's retreading some FDR language, but in a different way to, one, alleviate some immediate suffering that he identifies in the world now, but also to call us to a higher vision that there's maybe a sense in that non-sea sense of a lightness and also a heaviness. There's a retracing, there's a sort of transcending that is taking place in his using the figure of FDR or the rhetoric even of FDR, but in a transformative new way for a present context while also calling us beyond. And it seems that that connection of past to present to future is precisely this opening up of potency. And I'm not saying that it is the absolute transformative like Paul on the road to Damascus or Saul on the road to Damascus kind of transformation. But nevertheless, there's still something poetic in there. There's something excessive in that. And maybe that's how you can have, because I just, I just find political rhetoric and political discourse to be as cramping as you, we described earlier as philosophical discourse can be. And I'm just, I feel like that it, 
that it kind of circles around itself chasing its own tail because it just engages in cliches. And so I always wonder, is there something that, that can make politics poetic and in that and in that poetry make it transformative? And maybe that's integral to a transformative politics, an emancipatory politics. Yeah, it could could be. I mean, you're making me think of Alain Badiou, who <laughs> views things through the lens of truth procedures, and he distinguishes between yeah. truth procedure of art and truth procedure of politics. And he defines philosophy as the compossibility, the possibility in the same time of the different truth procedures, the other two, of course, being love and science. Um, but so for him, politics, right, is really paraphrasing here, but the creation of an egal of egalitarian maxims that can spread like wildfire and and animate animate people to act in more egalitarian ways, let's just leave it let's put it that way. Um, mm. and so I, I think that there's lots of lots of currents like that going on right now and and, and we can be cautiously encouraged by some of that. Poetry and art, on the other hand, he puts also paraphrasing, but it's to name the unnameable or express the inexpressible or say in language the unsaid of language um, or undo the saying in the, in the re-saying of the stating of what, you know, I mean, okay, to not play too much there, but um, hmm. so, so I do think there are different roles. It doesn't make, make me disagree with you at all. Um, I think that uh, you know you could you could object that the danger of thinking them too closely together is the danger of rhetoric and of rhetorics of persuasion and because poetry can be marshaled to sophistry pull, pull yeah and to and to pull people's um, emotions you know Zizek points out that poetry has been used as ways to justify genocide before so I mean it's very hmm. it's very uh, it's dangerous thing to uh, manipulate language. So there's a big responsibility um, in that. Hmm. I've kind of a hot take. We're talking a bit about, you know, um, how Twitter has affected language and it seems to lack this defamiliarization tendency that we find as a function of poetry. So it makes me think in hot take version that, you know, who's like got to be the most poetic Twitter uh, figure? It's got to be drill, right? Who's you drill? guys know who drill is, right? I don't. I don't know drill. I don't, this is not off the top of my head. He's the dude who has like the the blurred Jack and Jack Nicholson avatar, and he, oh yeah, okay. It's all like absurd tweets that don't make sense on the surface usually, <laughs> and they kind of yeah. they usually come from someone who <laughs> seems like they're an idiot. Who's Who's the dude that wears like the Toronto uh, Toronto Blue Jays cap in his avatar? Oh, I don't know who that is. Oh God, what's his name? He he, kinda, he does that too. He's just always like lobbing oh, Twitter. Grenade. Everybody stop Twitter. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I know, man. He's always <laughs> lobbing grenades into uh, into timelines and shit. Um, but why why drill? What is what is drill's thing? That's... Well, this is mostly a joke, but I think that yeah. the appreciation for drill just comes from the fact that um, his tweets don't seem to have an obvious message. They don't seem to be beholden to um, a, like a political point necessarily all the time. Although sometimes it's, you know, subtly political. Um, and so people end up comparing famous blundering tweets 
two famous drill tweets all the time. And you see like hmm. dr- there's drill drillosophers where it's comparing philosophical <laughs> quotations to drill, uh, which is great because that means they're just they're so ambiguous that they could really mean anything. And so it kind of shocks you to thought in a totally you know mundane and innocent way that's not necessarily right. like yeah. But it, I think that that at least points to the fact that people are finding Twitter to be kind of nauseating uh, or nauseatingly familiar. And uh, it sounds like he's great. like the Diogenes of of Twitter. Yeah, a bit. Although I think Diogenes kind of had an obvious political point to score, being a cynic. But mm. yeah, well, what I don't know. Like, I wonder. I love him. We'll go in. He goes into the square and with his with his lamp on in the middle of the day, and everyone's <laughs> like, "Why are you walking around? here looking for a human." <laughs> <laughs> oh God, it's so good. Here's the problem. Like, okay, so that that is what we had. That's like one form of kind of like a brilliant the original troll let's say but now there's no creativity now you get like what's that guy gaten whatever from stranger things that his prank show is that he's going to get people who are searching for a job and he's going to prank them that they oh think God. they've got a job it's like that's or you get people that are like going up to people in the park and asking them you know ridiculous like telling them their dog is ugly or something like that like that's the level like you know, they go up and they're like, oh, look at this ugly dog. And the owner's like, what? And he's like, yeah, he's so ugly. You know, like like father, like son. You know, like like that's the level, that, that's our Diogenes today. And and I wonder, I wonder how how much of an impact, like a, and maybe we're just totally romanticizing Diogenes. Maybe he too it, it is only given the status that he's given because some books have been written and we didn't have as many other people contributing to like canonizing people's words at that at that time but i wonder like a thousand years from now is is there going to be an impact like a real impact from people on twitter from these things that are done or is it all just lost in the sea of course not it's lost in the sea i mean poetry is lost in the sea but it's prepared itself for that it's prepared i mean this is the view that you know he uses the metaphor of letter sent in a bottle out into sea it's totally lost but it's it's sent heartward you know it's not sent nonchalantly or just for a laugh it's sent to become a part of you to really almost eucharistically be ingested and to transform your being and it, it takes a lot for language to become that powerful for the word to become that powerful but i mean i guess it's just my opinion but i doubt that's happening on twitter very often hmm. yeah i mean yeah. by its very nature twitter is addressed to a particular intended audience and poetry seems like it has to at least ambiguate that in order to exist yeah yeah totally yeah um it's a great essay by osip mandelstam called on the addressee and he makes a different differentiation between Discourses that sort of know their audience and kind of can play with those expectations and bring the satisfactions that that audience would expect versus uh, poetry, which is kind of this merger with the unknown and address to an unknown addressee or who even or that even um, kind of creates uh, addressee. Like uh, Paul Clay saying that he made, makes his art for the unborn. You know, we don't know who we don't know who's coming. Poetry is, is 
uh, a hand outstretched to take the hand of that unknown you. To circle back around them, that's got to have something to do with messianicity, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, directed towards an audience that doesn't yet exist. I like that a lot. Doesn't, doesn't ex- not yet exist, but we're in that movement, you know. That's kind of the faith. It's difficult faith, but, you know, I mean, we have to do it, right? Like, let's not be distracted. Let's not waste our time. Like, it's hard. Very hard. Um, but trust your heart that your activity is heading in that direction of the not yet. And, yeah, that, that is part of messianism. Are there any poems that you want to share with us? I know you had sent us a couple, and we briefly talked about that. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know how much longer we were going to be talking. I could talk about this all day, but um, well, let's let's kind of end on this. Um, maybe just okay. share share a poem that uh, that really strikes you, and then maybe at the end, the very last thing is if you wouldn't mind sharing one of your own. Okay, I'm going to read something by Paul Salon then called So Many Constellations, So Many Constellations That Are Held Out to Us. I was, when I looked at you, when, outside, by the other worlds. Oh, these ways, galactic. Oh, this hour that weighed nights over for us into the burden of our names. It is, I know, not true that we lived. There moved blindly no more than a breath between there and not there. And at times our eyes whirred comet-like toward things extinguished in chasms. And where they had burnt out, blended with teeth, the time on which already grew up and down and away all that is, or was, or will be. I know, I know, and you know. We know we did not know we were there, after all, and not there. And at times when only the void stood between us, we got all the way to each other. So tell me it, about yeah. yeah go can ahead. You talk Troy. about what, how that or why that a poem affects you the way that it does. You know, poems. One thing Nancy says is that poems don't do the problem solution game. Mm. They ask to be recited. There's actually a mechanical aspect to a poem. Um, Valerie says that the poem is a machine for producing the poetic state of mind. It's very important that he calls it a machine. And for Nancy, that means that with poetry, the primary issue is recitation and not, and not commentary. So, hmm. yeah, I, I mean, it's difficult because we don't all have the sheet of paper in front of us. And so analyzing the poem would be lovely. But, um, you know, especially the last line, at times when only the void stood between us, we got all the way to each other. The whole poem plays with, you know, it starts with, there's all these constellations. And when I looked at you, I was outside. I was by other worlds. 
And all of these galactic ways, the, the weight, the night, the burden of our name, the, the, the breath between being there and not there, things extinguished. Uh, you know, it, 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 it has a lot of, I, I, I think it packs a lot of punch. And then at the end, it's, it's this moment of encounter. And, and for Paul, uh, Paul Salon, that's what the poem is. It involves this mystery of a counter, of, of an encounter between the I and the you, between the I and the holy other. And I just find that even philosophically very important that times when only the void stood between us, we got all the way to each other. I mean, I, you know, when you read a text and it's like the only thing you can think about, so forgive me for bringing it up again, but oh, please. Uh, difference in repetition is just bouncing around in my mind and um, Deleuze famously in the second chapter develops what are called his three syntheses of time of habit memory um, which are kind of lumped together that they consolidate around one another that they create identity and the third synthesis the synthesis of time is the eternal return of difference which we could just say is really essentially what time is itself and what is time itself it's difference it's death it's that identity will be disrupted. It's that things will change. It's becoming. It's the guarantee of disruption. And uh, in this poem, he mentions time about halfway or a little beyond the halfway point. Right. And all of these things, these worlds that he's experiencing and these diversities and these differences aren't difference in itself. Those are the second order of difference, what he calls differentiation with a C, Deleuze calls it that, which is like the difference of identities, the predicated differences, you know, a white, a black, a big, a tall, a galaxy, uh, a star, whatever. Those are the predicated differences. Um, and, and then this notion of the void and this notion of time is really interesting because it is fundamentally that guarantor that uproots all of those things. Right, and right. it it might lead you to think, fuck, okay, pure contingency, there's nothing. And then there's that moment at the end that you say that you're drawn to that is sort of overcoming um, somehow that void, that in the midst of this disruption, that there's still an encounter, that there's a reciprocity, that there's an embrace. And And I think that that's intentionally paradoxical in the sense of, you know, it's paradoxa, it's against belief, it's, it's confounding in a way. And to me, when you sent me the poem and I read it, that was the thing that struck me most immediately because um, I don't know much about Ceylon, but the word void obviously has a lot of philosophical connotations attached to it. And yeah. so I'm thinking a lot about it from that perspective and how how the void isn't necessarily this bad thing that you're that you're lost into like a black hole in a horror film or something like that the event horizon but yeah. but it's this it's this almost seemingly unbridgeable problem but then nevertheless you still do embrace in that problem and I don't know if that's a solution. It's not like well okay whenever you find a void you have to provide a solution. It's not that. It's almost kind of like somehow in the midst of these worlds disrupted by time, this happens. I'm really struck by that 
phrase you said earlier, Tim, that the poem is a machine for producing a poetic state of mind. Yeah, Paul Valerie, yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is very simplistic, but you know, I'm a, I'm a novice when it comes to the, the, this stuff. So, you know, I think the the kind of colloquial or popular attitude whenever you get a bit of language is to just sort of divulge meaning, right? That's our right. initial impulse, right. and yeah. um, it's really hard to turn that off and yeah. not give commentary, or at least not necessarily not give commentary, but respond in a way that's not intending to divulge inner meaning yeah. uh, and that doesn't mean necessarily that you know oh meaning is relative no because you're still trying to divulge meaning it's just meaning that's within <laughs> you <laughs> rather than within the poem um mm. so it's yeah. a different sort of way of dealing hermeneutically in a sense with the poem um interpretation is not about divulging meaning in the poem or in yourself or in your context it's producing this poetic state of mind in yourself in some right. way like right. resituating yourself Mm. Yeah, there's there's so much to say on this question of meaning and sense. I think that the, the void that Salon references in a way could be like a void of meaning as well. When there was a void of meaning between us, when we didn't know the meaning, we, we got to each other. Um, but yeah, and, and I would hearken back to what I said about, um, you know, usually language is about the communication of a meaning such that the language disappears. Um, and, and in poetry, you have something much different. It's, it's a, a symmetry or an oscillation between the, the sound and the, and the sense, or between the words that are used and the thoughts that are expressed, so that there's a kind of inseparability um, or intensity of inter, interrelation between sort of intellectual side, which is meanings, the significations, um, ideas, etc., and the more material or perceptual aspect of how are the letter arranged, how is the breath moved, what sounds are being used. Um, and um, yeah, the interesting thing with also writing poetry, but this happens not only in writing poetry, of course, but you know, the, the form and the and the content cause each other, you know. So sometimes the, the, the form of what you write proceeds from the revelation or something. Other times the, the revelation is caused by the form and it's this constant interplay, right, between the, the meaning that maybe you're trying to get at and the material signs and arrangements of those signs that you're using to, to get there. And, and these are in, interchangeable, right? Because because the poem wants to be a kind of unity of sense and sound. Yeah, that's why I wondered <clears throat> about the uh, the context of digital communication in relation to the poem. You know, I, I've I've heard some people famously say that poems are meant to be read out loud, and I go to some poetry nights here in Sydney, and there is a very different experience in the performance of the poem. Now, maybe I am just drawn towards performance anyway, as somebody who grew up on the stage and still enjoys right. the performance aspect as, as something that is extremely, maybe integral to the human experience. So I, I love when a poem is performed. Like when you read the poem, I enjoy that more than when I read the poem, even. And, right. Right. and I almost feel 
you know, like, and I almost feel like if I were to stand up in my room and, and I had no embarrassment and I just recited the poem out loud, like imagining myself on stage that I would actually enjoy that more than just sitting there reading a poem in a cafe in silence. And And I, and I wonder if there's something to that that is profoundly restricted in the digital medium and not that it somehow makes it impossible, but it's a different, it's formally different, like necessarily because it's mediated through a sequence of zeros and ones on this screen that's reflecting light to you and it's plugged into a machine. and, And that's different than when you go to a poetry reading and somebody stands up there and, and then is, is performing live and there's that immediate empathic connection yeah. uh, with with the person you know Wittgenstein says a similar thing he talks about how there was a poet whose work he just couldn't get into and then I think he heard that person reading it and then all, all of a sudden it clicked you know because he got the mm. intonation behind it and the rhythm of it mm. yeah it's it's a big question I mean does a poem is a poem supposed to only work on the page um, does it have to be performed? You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of different type of poetries out there, even in the written and word, the worded context between, you know, song lyrics. Song lyrics are all, also very often just poems that are sung and put to music. Um, um, and there's slam poetry, which is mm-hmm. generally more demonstrative. Um, I, as maybe you would guess by now, fall a bit more to the side of how are the words on the page and what is it, what it, I, I, I view um, poetry as sometimes painting with concepts or trying to induce a type of alchemy of the mind. So that, hmm. You know, because I come from a philosophical background, you could say. Um, and so how do I, how do I play with that? And, and, you know, it's pretty rare that you would hear any philosophy read out loud, which is, in itself, <laughs> in itself kind of an interesting ah, thing. oh my god that sounds like a new form of torture yeah it does right, right right and so maybe i'm trying to devise a side of kind of new type of torture with poetry I never, never <laughs> <laughs> but no i mean i i actually mean that somewhat seriously because yeah you know when you read a, a passage in philosophy you really do slow down and your mind rereads a sentence goes back it doesn't finish a paragraph right away you know, it, it, it does all this shuffling around. And I would say that my work um, is, is a bit like that. It's how I compose things. It's how I read things. So, um, you know, maybe I'm just expressing my own anxiety. Mm. No, I think that's very true. I mean, you, you can't just digest philosophy in a similar way right. that you can't just digest poetry. Otherwise, no, you can't. you're not really doing no. anything with it. No, you can't. It, it, I mean, what's what's nice is that there's the pleasure of hearing it read aloud and performed, the sort of one-time event, and then luckily it's also written on the page, so you can have the handout, you can have the book, and you can go back to it, and and all of these elements from mm. spectrum of, spectrum of sound to spectrum of signification, it, 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 it's all elements, you know, and it all participates in the inten- intensification of of reality in which poetry is engaged. Okay, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we end um, on one of your poems? And, yeah, we'll uh, try. We'll try. Yeah. yeah. And and as you say, maybe maybe uh, if you want, because you said you don't 
want to necessarily rush into commentary, but if, uh, yeah, if maybe, I'll, I'll maybe not a commentary, but maybe just describe, um, well, I guess whatever it is that you feel like yeah, like sure. saying, I guess it would still be a commentary, wouldn't it? <laughs> but whatever, yeah, whatever um, supplementally you might want to say afterwards. So, um, yeah, like I said, you know, I, I, I use poetry. I like the idea of painting with concepts. Um, I have a lot of philosophical thoughts in my head, and, and I try to kind of channel them through a poetic way of thinking them through. And um, I was in a, I'm, I'm here in Baltimore, and there was a nice seminar on pantheism and Kabbalic thought. And so I was four hours a day for the week in this really great master class on pantheism, learning about uh, rabbinic Judaic thought, um, the whole question of, um, you know, is God in the world or separate from the world and all the different ways that's been thought through by Kabbalah. Um, and so this poem that I'm going to read is a sort of, you could call it maybe some kind of synthesis or transcript of my reflection. And um, the thing is that I didn't have the reflection before I wrote the poem. It's like I was saying earlier, you know, the, the way that it comes out is is the thought. There's an inseparability there. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's not to say that I'm going to clarify any issue about pantheism and Kabbalic thought, right? <laughs> I, also, I also made a list of like nine questions that are very philosophical. It was, it was all, uh, it was just one aspect of, of thinking through the problems. And so, so yeah, so I'll, I'll read it. The poem is called uh, Trouble in Paradise. Elohim, all the episodes, all disarranged, desired, caught in the cable wires, mapped out by metaphor. Dress of the Shekinah, in glory come see-through, rung by rung at the seam. Seems close, closed still, in recognition. Question, grounded in God without an answer, gets studied. Viscosities of word prime matter without qualities, peeping through the bone. Mount to mourn, the unbound capnation rolling from babes' mouths. You believe the dribble, you slam down in holy palaces of nothingness, as they repeating. Color is immediately emptiness. Emptiness immediately in color. Solve thus every solution in the absolute water. Baptize utterances with spit if you must, or let them withdraw into imageless cores of roars of earths, arcs, remarks. The genius is all the same, only the news pumps vary according to limit density polar magnet strength and thread count of pages, numberless, remember, like folds in the brain, so cozy in the next phase, it was impossible to ever gauge exactly who's turned here or how it all got ahead. Hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> So when did you um when did you pen this one? Oh, maybe a month ago. Okay. The phrase, what is it? Uh, baptize utterances with spit, if you must. Exactly. 
That's oh my gosh. <laughs> that I, I'm going to use that and cite you. That is that is fantastic. Do, yeah. Yeah, that is fantastic. Do. That also sounds like a great song by like some death metal band from the early nineties. Deicide or something baptized with spit. Absolutely, yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, so you know it's a big I I, I can on the thread of the when you post the audio or whatever, I can post the actual text so people can see it. But it's just a long it's just a long column of words. Hmm. Yeah, so yeah. so yeah. I don't know. <laughs> is is there is there um is there a, a website where you have this online for people to find? Um, I'm I'm working on that a bit. I I have I mean I have a website with mostly philosophical prose, fragilekeys.com, but I'm I'm thinking to start posting some more of the, my poetry on there. I mostly do it through Facebook nowadays at Timothy Lenz. But um, okay, you know anyone can always contact me. I sort of live for this stuff, so I'm always. And hmm. hmm. It's very, very experimental to me, and keeps me awake. You know, keeps me thinking. Again, the thing that I I find so interesting is, and 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 again, it's because of my disposition towards performance. But but for me, I really enjoy uh, paying attention to cadence. Like yeah, um, like when you read that poem aloud. Do you have beats that you follow? Is it something that is improvised in the moment? Is it something that you kind of have a structure, but it's also like jazz composition where you kind of also improvise as well? It's it, oh, is it, or, exactly yeah yeah. There's there's kind uh, okay. of a script and the arrangement on the page. Um, there all all the lines that I just read are are basically four words long, four or five words long. Um, with kind of the sentence uh, in jams to the next line, and there's some commas, there's some uh, colons, you know, um, and so the, and so. Um, but no, in the in the performance of reading it, I tried to kind of just let myself totally get. Lo- I hope it was a decent reading of it. Um, Try to get lost in in the movement of it and let the breath do that work. And so there's improvisation, but what it is on the page, and I've, I've read this poem, you know, at least 30 times now in editing and everything. So, um, so you know, I, I, I know kind of what's coming when I'm reading it. Mm-hmm. Someone else would potentially read it much slower and need to in order to absorb it, and I would love that. I, I could have read it slower too, right? Um, mm. And so, so I imagine the poems I write as potentially being in a lot of different sort of performative registers. Including maybe heavy metal, if someone so wishes. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard anybody else read your poems aloud to you? Um, yeah, I have. Yeah, I have some friends. What's that experience like? Is does it reveal something new to you? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, I'd like I'd like the poems I, I'd like the poems to be encounters. So. Um, as important as the performances, the, the poem doing something to the spirit of the person reading it is very important to me, doing, doing something to their mind and to their sensibility. And even if it's simply the, the recall within themselves of a pain or a hope or an aspiration or 
the sorrow, you know, the joy, anything, you know, anything to keep us in touch with sort of hardcore, which is, you know, believe it or not, made up of language in a certain way. Not entirely, maybe, but silence and language. Well, great, man. I say we go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and wrap it. Let's wrap it up there. Um, great. Yeah. It's funny that that hour for me flew by so fast, an hour and fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah, for I sure. feel like I feel like I still have so much more that I that I want to explore. <laughs> hey, um, let's do it again. We can talk about poetry as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, deal, yeah. deal. Let's do it. Um, okay, so where just to to uh, uh, affirm uh, or to to confirm, where can people find you uh, online again? Uh, FragileKeys.com. Okay. Is one spot. Um, and, and then Facebook is quite easy. It's just Timothy Levin's my name. And uh, I post things, I post poems there at least a few times a week, usually just kind of as I write them and I repost. And I'll be putting more stuff on my website here coming up. It's always for me a bit of a, I'm, I'm getting over this, uh, uh, this obstacle of kind of organizing things and putting things together in a logical way. But maybe I just need to post them. So they'll be there soon. Okay. And for people who are curious how to spell it, it's L-A-V-E-N-Z. Cool. Well, sick, man. Thanks for coming on and chatting. Oh, I love it. Yeah, thanks so much, Tim. Thanks, Troy. Thanks, Austin. Yeah. And shoot me fucking poems when you come across amazing (laughs) ones, man. Anytime you feel like it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, cool. It's it's, it's so rich, you know. It really is so rich. There's so so much great stuff in the last hundred years written poetic imagination I really encourage anyone to go keyword search hard or something beautiful stuff cool awesome man well cool well we'll chat with you soon then alright so next we're moving on to the sticky leaves segment of the podcast this is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless world so Austin, what's given it to you this week? Yeah, so we recently, I think we talked about it a couple of times on the podcast, but we had the Sydney Film Fest that came here uh, that lasted for 10 days, I believe, from the 5th, well, 11 days, 5th through the 16th. And I saw a film on opening day called Angelo. And um, so I, I saw five films. I saw Angelo, I saw a film called Monos, uh, which is Spanish for monkeys. I saw a film called Bacurau, which is a Brazilian film that won the jury prize at Cannes Film Festival. I saw a documentary on Tomá Piketty's capital in the 21st century. And then I saw the film that actually ended up winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and also it won the top prize at the Sydney Film Fest, which is Bong Joon-ho's new film, Parasite. Now... All five of the films were good, and I'll rank them fifth to first. I would say Monos was my least favorite. It is an allegory about... Um, it's kind of got a Lord of the Flies element to it, where it's you're, you open on these young uh, teenagers who are in a kind of military troop, a sort of guerrilla paramilitary kind of operation... But they're being trained by somebody 
who is, you know, whipping them into shape, so to speak. That's the opening scene. Um, and then it co you come to find out that they are serving this uh, enigmatic organization. The organization is all you ever hear about. And you don't ever know what it is or who they are or what the commands are really. But it's not really about their broader mission so much as it is about their the effects of these external um, impositions on their internal community. And they have a woman hostage who's an American doctor. We find out at the very end she's an engineer. And she is taken hostage for uh, as a bargaining chip. And, um, and I think that the film is really sort of exploring uh, imperial Western, imperial meddling into the South American, the Latin American context, and what types of divisions it sows within the local communities, but also at a sort of um, inter-regional and international level. And so it's interesting thematically, but and, it, and it's shot beautifully. I mean, it is absolutely gorgeous. And they're in the fucking jungles of, God, I think they're in Colombia or something. The director is, uh, I can never remember if Brazilian-born Colombian or Colombian-born Brazilian, but um, has a, a real sort of like a pan South American sensibility, and I think it comes across in the film. But uh, there's they're in like the fucking jungles in South America somewhere, and it is some of the most gorgeous, uh, like immersed jungle scenery I've ever seen. And then in the opening sequences, they're up on this mountain top, and it is. You know that famous romantic painting? I can never fucking remember the name of it. It's where the guy is standing over the misty, the misty valley, and he's on the mountaintops. Oh yeah. What's it called? Fuck. Uh, it's a Caspar David Frederick painting, I think. Right? Yeah. Like the Wanderer or something. Something like that. It's got a lot of that type of vibe to it, like looking into the sublime, just the expanse of, of nature kind of thing. So it's absolutely gorgeous, but it was still my least favorite of the five that I saw. Uh, because I think it was a little bit try-hard, and um, and some of it I felt like pr I probably missed out on. Even though I talked with a couple of Peruvian friends and said, is there stuff that I missed in the South American context that you guys would kind of help me out on? And even after talking with them, it still kind of didn't didn't um, alleviate some of the kind of maybe limitations that I saw in the film. But still good. I would go see it. Uh, then I would say the document or the documentary on... Um, on uh, what's his face on Tamal Piketty's book Capital in the 21st Century. If you're interested in economics and the history of economic inequality, how capitalism operates from a more sort of center left perspective, uh, I would say the documentary is going to be a very useful resource. It'll probably be on Netflix. I would imagine it kind of just screamed to me Netflix documentary when I watched it. Not in a bad way. It's actually formally kind of interesting as well, but it wasn't um, it wasn't like mind blowing. And then I think that some of the inherent theoretical limitations of Piketty's approach to analyzing capitalism are obviously translated into this film. But nevertheless, I think it's an important piece. Um, and I think for people who aren't invested as much in economic literature and sort of left concerns with analyzing capitalism, that it won't rub them uh, in, the, in a wrong way, in the same way that it might for other people who are more invested in more Marxist critiques of political economy. But nevertheless, I think that if you're interested in inequality, if you're interested in the history of capitalist development from, let's say, the French Revolution onward, uh, it's a very informative film, and I think it's going to be a valuable teaching tool, especially for educators, um, and then just for people, like I said, who aren't as already 
uh, immersed in that type of language. Um, and then the third ranked film for me would be Baccarat. Now, Baccarat was the Palme d'Or winner. And I'm sorry, was the was the jury prize winner at Cannes. And it has been getting heaps and heaps and heaps of praise. And it is a very strange um, cross-genre film. It is part Western, like part spaghetti Western, part sci-fi, uh, and it has splashes of magical realism thrown throughout. And so when you sell it like that, it sounds super interesting. And I think when I think about the film afterwards, I think it's brilliant. But some of the things fell really flat to me, in particular, the American actors, or let's just say the English-speaking actors, because not everyone was American. The English-speaking actors were really, I thought, bad, like really bad. And a lot of their scenes were overly expositional, um, paced a bit slow, and they seemed to not they seem to not fit the pacing and um, the the intensity or magnitude of the rest of the film, which I think is really, really fucking interesting. And I don't want to give away too much, but the film also is a sort of allegory, and it talks about the influence of like manifest destiny and the cowboy spirit, right? It's a spaghetti western, but it's a sort of revisionist western or a post-western in the spirit of you know, something like a Django or something like an Unforgiven that's kind of taking the old tropes of the classic Western and then inverting them and problematizing them. No longer is it the good guys of the white hats and the bad guys of the black hats or the good guys that are the cowboys or the cavalry and the bad guys are the Native Americans or whatever, but it inverts that and it's a sort of, it speaks from the perspective of, uh, let's say, the indigenous uh, for lack of a better word, even though I, that's not quite right because it's not indigenous communities, but it is um, from the perspective of the non-imperial power, the non-colonial power, right? And so it's very interesting, and it kind of then has a very interesting sort of revolutionary kind of ending at the end. I think there's some really interesting themes, but I just got snapped out of it a few times because of poor acting and um, some stilted dialogue. Uh, nevertheless... You're a little higher on it now than you did right after you saw it, though. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, you know what's funny? It's one of those films that upon reflection... It, it, it's I'm starting to see the his intent in mixing the genres I find to be far more interesting now upon reflection and I'm less peeved at the bad acting but when I was watching it I was sitting there in my seat and I found myself squirming like there's one scene in particular where it's all these uh, English speaking actors many of whom are American but they're sitting around talking and I just I was like, this is bad, man. Like, just the, <laughs> it was slow and just so heavy-handed expositionally that that I just, ah, uh, it just made me so uncomfortable. And maybe, fuck, maybe that was the point to make you feel uncomfortable. But there's a way, I, I don't know. I didn't think so. Because bad acting, I don't think, is ever the point. Um, unless it's, Unless it's um, a type of, like, they're trying to intentionally do over-the-top acting like uh, like Nick Cage sometimes does, where you know it's intentional, right? Like in Vampire's Kiss. like Or Arnold, dude, like Commando. 
I just think he's not a good actor, dude. I don't think it's intentional. Yeah, he's a bad actor. I think they, well, I think he's hired in that movie to be a bad oh, actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. That Okay, so that that's one way <laughs> of saying it. And then I think from the performance perspective that Nick Cage is trying to, like in Mandy, he said he was he was mimicking like kabuki theater masks with some of the faces that he was doing. So there's an intentional – it's not bad acting, but it's um, it's overdramatic, right? But yeah. when but when you're a bad actor and you're overdramatic or you're a bad actor and you're not – you're not fitting within the rhythms or the musicality of the scene. Uh, I don't think that that's, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's very difficult for me to find that as being a valuable contribution to the rest of the film, especially when the rest of the film was so, I think, well shot, well paced, and well acted. So, But anyway, I would say go see it. Go see it. I, I think it's really interesting. And the way that he weaves the genres together is, is really quite um, remarkable. The second best film that I saw was Parasite, which means my favorite film of the fest was actually Angelo. Now, I'll talk a little bit about Angelo, but I'll just say that I wrote a review up on the owlsatdawn.com website. You can go to our blog. We don't blog that frequently, but, you know, a few pieces come out every couple months, and um, this is one that I, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about the film. And I had to write a review. So I won't say too much now just because I think I said everything in that review. But it was my favorite film. I don't think it's the best film. Parasite is the best film. And I'll explain what I mean in a second. But Angela was my favorite film from the festival. Um, I think it was absolutely remarkable. Go see it. It is a Swiss filmmaker. And it's in French and Swiss German. But it's, um, it, it's just an absolutely remarkable story sort of based on a true story, based on an historical figure, a guy named Angelo Solomon. But um, it it definitely is a is a unique piece in its own right. And then if you want to read my review, my review is filled with spoilers, so if you're okay with spoiling it, go check it out. But no, I want to talk about Parasite for a second. You like Bong Joon-ho, yeah? Huge fan. Huge, Huge fan. fan. Um, I think Parasite's one of the better films I've seen in a long time. It is... Absolutely remarkable, and no spoilers here. But it's um, it's a story about a family in Korea that is falling on some hard times, and um, does what it takes to to uh, overcome some of their financial precarity. And I'm laughing because that sounds serious, but it's handled. In typical Bong Joon-ho fashion, it is funny as fuck, <laughs> but also tragic, and also provocative, and also interesting, and it is gorgeously shot. I Afterwards, I had a friend basically say that it was really interesting to contrast it with Snowpiercer, which again has a very sort of similar type of class concern to it, right? The people in the back of the train moving to the front of the train, but it's this lateral movement, right? This film is all about up and down. It's all about stairs, ascending and descending. And using that as a visual motif is so powerful because it isn't something that's said in words. It's something that you travel in the frame with the director going up and down stairs, right? Going in and out of rooms, down hallways, into basements, um, down into to parts of the city, up to other parts of the sort of richer parts of the city. It's this lovely visual way of exploring something that could 
have been handled in a very cheap sense, an expositional sense that just tells you, those are the rich people up on top of the hill and we're the poor people down here in the basement. You know, like, <laughs> you don't need to say that. And you are just brought into that world and you experience the ascent and the descents along with the characters on screen. It's also beautifully shot. And he was there, Bong Joon-ho was here at the screening, and so he answered some questions afterwards. And I didn't stick around for all of it, but I talked to some people afterwards who did stick around for all of it. And um, I guess one of the things he said that I is that they actually had to build the some of the city because they couldn't find it. They couldn't find a real one that um, accurately represented what he wanted to explore. And so they built this thing. So then again, just the scope of production and building this whole world, again, just shows you, it brings you into the uh, immense craftsmanship of somebody who was one of the foremost film craftsmen out there at the moment. And I think for me, the most important thing about this film is that he kind of says this at the beginning. He says, you know, there's so much confusion about what this film is because it's called Parasite. People think that it's going to be about monsters or about like, you know, uh, invasion of the body snatchers or something. He's like, it's not that. And he says it's at the beginning of the film too. So I feel like this is not a spoiler. He says, this is just a family film. And he says that with a cheeky grin on his face because yeah, it's- Yeah, Bong Joon-ho making a family film. <laughs> it's not, but it is. And I promise yeah. you, it is. And that's the thing that was so amazing to me. I walked out of this film saying, there are so many political films that are made, right? And a couple of the other films that I saw were political. Maybe part of the reason that Monos wasn't as successful was precisely because it was trying to be too political. It was trying to be a bit too heavy-handed with its themes. Whereas this film was, was a family film, but that also had themes of class struggle entwined into it, rather than it being a film about class struggle that used the vehicle of families to communicate the designing principle. And that's always a very sort of difficult line uh, or difficult uh, balance to, to kind of walk between because I also really like conceptual filmmaking and thematized films, but, but sometimes it doesn't work for whatever reason, you know? Um, and, and I think the way that Bong Joon-ho handled it was a sort of, perfect approach to both attacking uh, visceral concerns about the human experience and about economic inequality and about um, about the emotional strain and about the familial strain and about the social strain that that puts onto people. But it was handled in a way that was so gorgeous and so immersed into personal stories. I just think it's absolutely fucking brilliant. That's the best film that I saw. But still, Angelo was my favorite film. I just it, it somehow resonated with me at a at a sort of like transcendent level. So, but that was have, amazing. That's that's it. Have that's you it. seen Have you seen Chanwood Park's The Handmaiden? Oh yeah, excellent. Do you think that? Yeah, I love that film. Adore that film. Do you think that? Um, I mean, maybe I'm just making the comparison because they're, you know, both Korean. But um, in the same way, Chanwood Park kind of has a history of like genre films and. Um, uh, what do they call it? like extreme, extreme Asian cinema or whatever? Hmm. And then he moved into the the Handmaiden, which is more of this kind of it's a revenge film, but it's a little bit more of a uh, a drama with these political undertones. Um, yeah, political and done so and brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that Bong Joon Ho is kind of doing the same, a similar thing with Parasite, coming from his background with like Snowpiercer and uh, the host and stuff like that? 
That would be really interesting. I think a really lovely double bill would to see would be to see the Handmaiden and then to see Parasite, because you could link Snowpiercer to Parasite, and I think that would be a really interesting double bill. But I think a more a more rich comparison would be to see the Handmaiden, which is dealing with. I mean, do you call it class? Even I guess it is class, but it's royals and then servants, right? It's like. Arist- aristocratic class. It's not capitalist class. It's like pre. Like oppression is a lot of that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then there's the gender oppression, right? And then there's yeah. this sort of like triumph of uh, of femininity that defines itself not at a negatively distinguishing itself from the masculine, but just asserts itself in its autonomy, which I thought was a really interesting reversal and. And then, of course, because he's so fucking crazy, there's always a twist in his films that you're like, what? <laughs> And I did not see that twist coming. I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That film is so good. It's so good. It, it's still cemented in my mind and my emotional reaction to it at the end. Yeah. This film, Parasite, it it has some twists. It has some reveals that are definitely uh, going to be like, oh, shit. But then it has – it doesn't have a twist, but it has it has an event that seems to be like heightened compared to the rest of it where it doesn't seem out of place though because there's a lot of tension throughout the film right there's a lot of there's a lot of discomfort but it's a weird kind of playful discomfort sometimes you know like somebody hiding cuz they don't want someone to find them and then they almost find them kind of stuff um but it's handled in such a lovely way and then there is a moment where there is just this rupture and you're like, oh fuck. And it leads to tragedy and um and all of this is told through this conflict or this this let's say this opposition, this contradiction um of class struggle in in contemporary Korean society. And so it's a very timely film as well. But um yeah, I, I think that it would be an interesting double build to kind of take those and then to have like an interesting conversation about them um, to see how they handle similar ideas and, and similar themes. And, and the way that they do it is kind of similar as well, you know? So I do think that that's a good comparison because they are seeming to, there is a similar, there is a similarity in, in, in the way that they kind of film things as well. It's um, there's a flow, there's a beauty in their cinematography. I mean, there's a uniqueness to each filmmaker, but both of them are such just gorgeous meticulous filmmakers that um that yeah I, I think kind of like speaking of them in, in the same breath is kind of interesting but absolutely recommend it it's it's really fantastic yeah dude I, I can't wait to see it um do you think it's the kind of movie that's okay to see by yourself in your home or is it something you should probably try to find like an indie cinema to go watch i mean i saw it in a cinema with i would say a third of the audience being korean and it was amazing <laughs> if you can go to Koreatown and watch it, <laughs> I'm fucking serious, man. Like, if you live in a part of town, like if you're in LA or if you're in a big city and there's a place where there are a lot of uh, uh, Koreans, like go, or if you have Korean friends, go with them because I think it will enrich the experience because um, there's language stuff that they're going to pick up on and there's cultural stuff that they're going to pick up on that will... And it's like when I saw the film Filth. I think I've talked about this before. I saw the film Filth. It's a Scottish film and it's based in Edinburgh. And when I saw Filth 
in Scotland in a theater with a bunch of people from Edinburgh, it like made the viewing that much better, you know? <laughs> so I would say if you can see it in a theater, uh, definitely. I think it's one of those films that you'll be able to enjoy at home as well, though, too. It's not like, um, oh, God, what was a film that I saw recently that I feel like you just have to see it in in the theater? Um I mean, it's not like Mission Impossible where, like, you have to see the stunts on a big screen. Or it's not like, you know, I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey in the theater, which, like, you have to see on, like, 70 millimeter projection, right? Yeah. Like, you have to see that. This this is a film that I think you'll be able to enjoy at home. But I would recommend going to the theater for this one. Do you, do you think that Korean people do the same thing where they're like, dude, you got to go see Dude, Where's My Car? Or <laughs> Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with some Americans? Because you're just, it's going to be so much better to see it with them. I'm sure, dude. I'm 100% sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, dude. Got to go see Point Break with a couple of surfer dudes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, um, and I think the last thing I'll say about this too is, is one of the things that it just reconfirmed in my own mind is, is how much I love going to the movie theater. You know? Like, it really can be a communal experience, but I know the the majority of stuff that we stream and that we watch is in the privacy of our own homes or on our phones when we're at work or something like that. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, but there is there is still something unique and special, special about going to the theater. It's just a shame it's becoming so damn expensive, you know? Yeah, dude. Like, to go to the theater now and buy popcorn and Coke or something like that, and if you've got kids, you're going to spend over a hundred bucks just to go see a fucking film and i know they're trying to make their billions on their their new avenger films but it's a real it's a real disappointment and then of course the solution is ah but don't worry you can stream stuff at home for really cheap but then that takes away the communal experience it's almost like they're restricting the supply of sociality by raising the rates you know and that restricts a certain element of the social why don't it's this weird kind of like, um, you know, parasitic system where why don't adventure films cost $50 and then these indie films cost $5. Mm. I mean, I don't want these indie films to have to subsidize these adventure films that cost, you know, $300 million to make. Bullshit, dude. I know. Of course, the indie films, they can't make money as it is. Production costs increase, you know, at, a, at an exponential rate and you can't get funding for the indie films unless you've got a star attached to them. And yeah, they'll take a pay, St- pay cut, but... There's just so State much. State-owned theater, dude. What's up? Stalinize, Stalinize the movie theaters. <laughs> that's it. That's that's the answer, bro. <laughs> that's the fucking answer. That and then live theater too because live theater is a treat that is restricted from so many people because it's just so fucking expensive, you know? Yeah. Like, like who can afford to go to a, a Broadway show nowadays? Like very few people. It's, it's a privilege for the middle and upper classes, which is so unfortunate because theater and performance is something that is integral to the human experience. Now, that's not to say that obviously lower socioeconomic uh, – people in the lower socioeconomic spectrum don't have any recourse to theater. But the point is is that there's a division of, um, of access, and that is just such, such a travesty to me, you know? Like – 
you can rant and rave about the amazing property that is Hamilton. Well, cool. Well, so it's just a bunch of like East Coast liberals that are ever going to be able to see it or like vacationers who save up a shitload of money. No one else is going to really be able to see Hamilton. And I'm not even saying that Hamilton is going to be great or whatever. But the point is, is that something that is supposedly this huge cultural phenomenon is restricted to what, 10% of the population that could ever see it. And that just fucking sucks. Yeah, dude, there's nothing that's more, uh, more of an expression of, of like, lack of uh, or of a class divide than someone saying like i've seen hamilton i'm never going to be able to see hamilton <laughs> hamilton's coming here in australia and i'm looking at tickets but it's going to be so expensive bro and the oh, demand yeah, is sydney oh my god i know and it's going to probably play at the opera house see the thing was is i was hanging out with a girl for a little bit who's an actor and was performing at the opera house um and so we're still kind of we're still kind of in communication so maybe i'll hit her up and be like hey what's up you could get me an ac- access to a ticket <laughs> sneak me in the stage door <laughs> so um well cool man we should probably go ahead and wrap up the episode there so yeah yeah cool uh thanks guys for tuning in thanks so much for tim uh joining us uh obviously thanks to Mubi again remember everybody that's listening go to movie.com slash owls at dawn to get your extended 30-day trial to that if you want to communicate with us you can shoot us an email owls at dawn podcast at gmail.com you can find us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Same on Insta. What else, Troy? You can uh, go to owls.dawn.com, as Austin mentioned previously, to listen to episodes or comment on them. Um, and you can also, as we've mentioned before, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. And if you do so and ask a question in your review, we will answer it on the next show as long as we can do so in a minute or two. Cool. Sounds good. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, man? Just one more thing I can think of, dude. Oh, what's that? That's the Damian Americanski. Yeah!